Welcome to Evanston Bible Fellowship this morning. My name is Mitch. I'm one of the pastoral apprentices here. I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. And I hope that you are enjoying the warm weather as summer approaches just as much as I am. Uh, I'm a native Floridian, and so summer is one of my favorite times of year, especially in Evanston. But I've noticed in Evanston something strange happens during the summer. As it warms up, it seems like passionate people show up everywhere. I walk down a corner in downtown Evanston. It seems like I can't turn a corner without running into someone asking me for money or a signature for a cause they're excited about. And, and maybe some of you remember just a few weeks ago, even before it was warm, students from Northwestern were scattered all across Evanston raising money for Dance Marathon, one of these worthy causes which raises money for medical research and community development. But Dance Marathon's only one of the many, many causes people in America, and in Evanston especially, that people get passionate about today. Um, in fact, in Evanston, uh, we're kind of becoming known for being environmentally friendly and having lots of people who are passionate about that. Um, in fact, it's led to the development of the Environmental Advocacy Center at Northwestern University, or, or even in all of Chicago, the Chicagoland Environmental Network. People are seeing causes like environmentalism and things all over that they're get, getting passionate about. But maybe you're not so keen on recycling and buying organic and buying gluten-free, but it's hard to be a Christian today without hearing about the work International Justice Mission is doing. If you haven't heard, they're an organization that deals with human rights violations, most often sex trafficking victims. And when you hear the stories of the women, the children who are victims of sex trafficking, you hear the statistics, it's hard not to get passionate about that, right? We want to fight to end sex trafficking. We have passion for those things. I got to experience this sort of passion um, firsthand at a conference called Passion a couple years ago. Passion's a conference designed specifically for college students to come together to worship God and then to leave passionate for him. The year I was there, a focus was on justice issues, um, specifically sex trafficking. And as the couple days went on, you began to see a change in the students. They heard stories. They heard statistics. And a passion began to arise in them. And the answer they gave to all of the things they were hearing was $3.1 million. I don't know if you know this, but college students are broke. To raise $3.1 million as college students takes some serious passion and commitment. There's no other way that could happen. Here's the deal. We also live in a culture where our passion for a cause can lead to just a click and a like on Facebook or following on Twitter. And when passion leads to just a click, it's not enough to do anything. It accomplishes nothing. In the same way, passion for God or spiritual things or religion it's not enough to save you. As we continue in our series in Romans this morning, we're going to see that passion is not enough to save you. We're going to be looking today at Romans 9.30 through 10.4. 
And as we read, we're going to see two reasons why passion is not enough to save you. But before I pray, or sorry, before we read, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that your word convicts us and shapes us. And we ask that this morning you would please change our lives. You would help our hearts receive all that you have for us. Please speak to us. Thank you. Amen. Would you please, if you have not already done so, open your Bibles and um, turn to Romans 9, verse 30. We'll begin reading there. So starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? Pause. I know we just started. Let's take a time out. When we see words in this phrase, like then or therefore, that should be a trigger for you. That should cause you to look back at what you've just read, because what you're about to read is based on what you've just read. So let's reflect on what we heard last week. In Romans 9, we saw that God is just to choose some for salvation and not others. For Israel, this meant that even though all of Israel was part of God's people, only some were chosen for salvation. And so, this leads Paul to ask a question in verse 30. What shall we say then? He's saying, if based on everything I've said is true, then what are we supposed to say about the Israelites? Well, as we read on, as we look to see what we're supposed to say about Israel, we'll also see the first reason passion is not enough to save you. So let's look back at verse 30. We'll start from the beginning and continue on. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. The first reason passion's not enough to save you is because salvation comes through faith. Passion is not enough to save you because salvation comes through faith. And we can see this as Paul begins to answer what we should say about Israel. Look in verse 30. The Gentiles, or the non-Jewish people, received righteousness even though they didn't pursue it. If you remember from earlier in our Roman series, to be righteous means to be in good standing with God. And the very need for salvation comes from the fact that People aren't in good standing with God. And so, the Gentiles received righteousness, are in good standing with God, even though they didn't try. But how? Well, verse 30 also tells us. Look, it's a righteousness that is by faith. And so, salvation for the Gentiles came through faith. But what about Israel? Well, on the other hand, in verse 31... It tells us that Israel tried to attain righteousness by obedience to the law that God had given them. And the law that they were pursuing is the same law that we have in the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And just as today, reading, meditating, and responding on those books is supposed to help us walk with God, in their day, Paul says that the law was supposed to help lead them to righteousness. But 
Israel was not able to live up to that law. They did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, before we consider why they didn't reach that law, let's take a moment to to think about what would it be like for Israel to look in on the fact that Gentiles who didn't do anything were saved while they weren't. I imagine it might be something like the days in high school when tests were returned. Um, Maybe you were that student who spent Friday and Saturday studying for an exam. You, You spent the whole time never hanging out, no video games, no reading for fun, no exercise. You just studied, studied, studied. So Monday comes. You take the exam. You rock it. You're like, I'm going to get 100. No, no doubt about that. So Wednesday comes, and the tests are being handed back. And as the test slides across and you flip it over, to your dismay, it's a 92. An A minus. <laughs> Not that 100 you were hoping for. An A minus. You're devastated. But, but Sarah, your friend, you happen to know spent Friday, Saturday, and Sunday out by the pool enjoying the wonderful sun. Um, She didn't study at all. She turns to you, and she asks, what'd you get? And uh, you turn, and with more confidence than you actually have, you say, I got a 92. What'd you get? You're expecting her to respond with like a C or something like that, and you're like, I'm going to comfort I'm going to be that person who says, no, this, this doesn't matter. You can make it up, all of that. But she turns and says, I got 100. That's right. And she's done. She leaves it at that. But you, on the inside, you're just frustrated. You're devastated that the person who didn't try at all got the score you were hoping for. Well, in a similar way, imagine that Israel, in a much more offensive way, would have felt the same. Looking in on the Gentiles who didn't do anything after they've been obedient to God, followed his law, the Gentiles got righteousness while they got nothing. But why didn't Israel get righteousness? Well, Paul asks the same question in verse 32. So let's look. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So why didn't Israel receive the righteousness they had pursued? Why wasn't Israel saved? Well, because they passionately pursued righteousness by obedience to the law based on works. To understand what it means for Israel to pursue the law based on works, we need to have a little bit better of an understanding of what the law was about. You see, Genesis through Deuteronomy has three themes, among many, but three major themes. God's promises to Israel, how, God should, or how Israel should act as God's people, and God's provision when they fail. Now, what Paul says is that the Israelites became so passionate about how they should act as God's people, they ignored God's promises and provision. And the reason they were passionate about their obedience was because they were trying to prove that they deserved God's promises. 
They were trying to earn what God has promised based on the way they had acted. That's what it means to pursue the law based on works. That's not what the law was for or what the law was about. The law showed that God had made promises to Israel, and all they had to do was receive them. And if they did, they would then live according to those promises. Israel couldn't do anything to earn God's favor or righteousness. God had already promised them it if they would have received it by faith. But instead, they tried to earn it. So by passionately pursuing good works rather than placing their faith in God, they did not attain to that law. They didn't receive what God had promised. They missed out. And this is why Paul quotes and combines two passages from Isaiah in verse 33. So look at the beginning and the end of verse 33 with me. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone to the end, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This verse comes from Isaiah 28:16, And the passage promises that if Israel will trust in the foundation that God has laid, that they would be saved. But the middle portion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, that comes from Isaiah 8:14, And Isaiah prophesies that anyone who fails to trust in the Lord, they'll be judged. And so by combining those two passages, Paul indicates that the same stone that if you trust in, you'll be saved, is the same stone that if ignored, will bring judgment. But we'll have to wait a little bit longer to see what that stone is. So to answer Paul's question, what are we to say about Israel? Israel failed to attain salvation because they passionately pursued good works rather than placing their faith in God. But their passion for good works was not enough. See, passion's not enough to save you because salvation comes through faith. But today, people still act like Israel. In fact, during my time at the University of Florida, I met a whole group of people who were like this. Right across the street from where many of the students at the University of Florida attended was a Mormon church. And so this meant that you could often see Mormon missionaries in their white button-down shirts and black pants cycling all over campus. And they would talk and share their faith, according to the Book of Mormon, with anyone who would listen. Now, over my time as a college student, I befriended many of these missionaries. And we got into the most frustrating conversations. You see, they insisted time after time that the gospel I was believing wasn't enough. It needed another answer. And the answer was found in the Book of Mormon. And they would never put it this simply, but essentially what the answer in the Book of Mormon boiled down to is that if you keep the rules you find in the Book of Mormon, if you live by all the doctrine that Mormons believe, then you'd be saved. But even if I converted and did all those things, I could still end up losing my salvation if I failed to live up to that standard. This is so frustrating because I would point to verse after verse, including the ones we are looking at today, and give reasons why salvation comes through faith. But they had an answer for everything, even if it was simplistic. 
and to me illogical. And even at times felt like they just missed what I was saying altogether. They missed my argument and responded to something else. You can see why this would leave me so frustrated. But no matter what I said, they continued to insist their passion for good works was enough to save them. But I knew that passion was not enough to save you because salvation comes through faith. But now that we've seen passion's not enough to save you because salvation comes through faith, let's keep on reading to see the second reason passion's not enough to save you. Look with me in 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The second reason passion is not enough to save you is because passion can be misdirected. The second reason passion is not enough to save you is because passion can be misdirected. Look in verse 2. Paul tells us that Israel has a zeal, a passion for God, but it was not according to knowledge. Their passion was misdirected. Did you know that someone could be incredibly passionate for God and still not be saved? See, Israel thought they were following God. They were obeying his laws and his rules, doing everything they thought he wanted. They were even passionate about serving God, but they still weren't saved. They did not attain to righteousness because they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. EBF, you need to reflect on this. Israel thought they were saved, but their passions were misdirected. We are a people who does so much. We do every cause we can think of at Northwestern. We're involved in the worship team, the service team. We go to ethos group. We lead ethos groups. I preach, but none of those things mean we're saved. Your passion is not enough to save you. You need to reflect on how you try to earn your salvation based on all the things you even do for church. But, you may be asking, how could passion, or how could even all these things that we do that God desires be misdirected? Paul tells us in 10.3 that Israel was ignorant of the righteousness of God, sought to establish their own righteousness, and as a result, did not receive it. So what's it mean, in what way does Israel's ignorance of the righteousness of God misdirect them? Do you remember those three themes we talked about from Genesis to Deuteronomy? God's promises, the way Israel should act as God's people, and God's provision for their failures? Well, those reasons, those themes... They were ignorant of how they fit together. And that ignorance led to misdirected passion. We already saw how they became passionate about obedience in order to show that they deserved God's promises. They didn't realize that their obedience was supposed to be dependent on God's promises. But they also missed the fact that God's provision for them and their failure indicated something incredible. See, Israel, or God knew that Israel would fail. 
And so he provided a sacrificial system in which they could receive forgiveness and righteousness if they would shed the blood of an animal for their own life. If they would place their faith in God to provide grace and forgiveness, through that they could receive forgiveness. But rather than turning their passion towards God and placing their faith in Him to provide forgiveness and righteousness through the sacrifices, they centered in on what they should do, including the sacrifices. They did them. They did all of them. But they missed the point. They missed that it was supposed to direct their faith towards God to forgive them. You know, it's important to realize that the passion Israel had obedience, had for obedience was because they thought that's what God wanted. How many times do we run after things we think God wants for us, even if it's not? But their misdirected passion goes way beyond simply missing how the law works together. They missed another aspect of the law. Let's see what it is in 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, Israel's ignorance prevented them from receiving the righteousness of God because Christ was the end of the law for righteousness, and they rejected him. But what does Christ as the end of the law actually mean? Today, we might be tempted to read that and see that Christ is the end of the law. It means he's terminated every need for it. Obedience to it doesn't matter. But at one time, people earned their salvation through obedience to the law. And now, there's faith. But that's not correct. Salvation's never been dependent on obedience to the law. And there's another way of reading this verse when we focus in on the word end. Have you ever heard someone say, what's your end game? Right? That's a way of asking, what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? See, end can mean to terminate, to bring a finish to, to complete, but it also can mean the goal or purpose for something. And it depends on the context in which it's used. We've already seen how Israel wasn't getting saved based on their works even before Christ in 930 through 33. So this can't mean Christ came and ended the need for obedience to the law for salvation. Instead, what it means is that Christ was always the goal or the purpose to which the law pointed. Israel always needed faith in God to provide forgiveness through sacrifices. But Hebrews 9 also indicates that the very need to offer sacrifices day after day after day for their sins, showed something was messed up. Something was incomplete for the need to do it over and over. Hebrews 9 also tells us that Jesus completed that. Jesus brought completion to the law through his life, death, and resurrection. Hebrews 9.12 tells us he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus completed what the law had always been pointed to, that Israel needed faith in God and his grace for the forgiveness of sins. But when Jesus came and died, his sacrifice once and for all ended the need for sacrifices day after day, 
because he secured for you and for me an eternal redemption. We must only receive that grace by faith. See, Christ is the stone in 933. He was a stumbling stone to Israel because he confronted their works righteousness and they stumbled over it and rejected him. But he is also the stone that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, Israel should have seen that Christ was the end to which the law pointed. But their passion was misdirected. and They missed the point. Before we too quickly point the finger at Israel, how often do we forget that Jesus is the point to which our Bible, our whole Bible points, the end to which our ministry is supposed to revolve around, the end to which our lives are supposed to revolve around, the end to which sermons and Bible teaching are to point to? Did you even notice that until I read 10 verse 4, that Jesus' name hadn't been mentioned? You see, we can so often get caught up and passionate about ministry and life and good things, but we fail to even realize that our passions are being misdirected away from Christ. And that's a problem because passion is not enough to save you. But God's grace is sweet and the life he offers us in Jesus is great. See, Paul had experienced this sweet grace, and it leads him to do something kind of surprising with Israel. Did you notice how Paul interacts with the Israelites who've missed the entire point? Look with me in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul has experienced God's grace and longs for Israel to experience the same thing. He doesn't become angry or frustrated by Israel's passionate attempts to attain the law, but rather he prays for them and longs for them to be saved. And I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, have encountered people who espouse one sort of work or another. In Evanston, we've already heard there's this environmental friendliness thing going on, but there's people who move beyond simply thinking that recycling or buying organic or gluten-free is good for their health and good for their environment. There's some people that saving the environment becomes their gospel. It's the way that they're going to be saved. And, and so that leads them to tell everyone that you need to live exactly like me. You need to be passionate exactly like me. Have you interacted with people like this? Maybe not those exact people, but you would know because conversations leave you feeling like you don't measure up. If you don't live exactly like them and are passionate in exactly the same ways, you're failing to be significant. You're failing to have meaning. And conversations with these people can be frustrating, leave us angry, bitter, and even wanting to avoid them. But Paul's prayer for Israel shows us another way. And it directly confronts my own frustrating conversations with Mormon missionaries. Maybe it confronts yours, too. Paul doesn't become angry or frustrated 
about their seeking righteousness through obedience to the law. But rather, he prays that they would be saved. It took me so long to come to terms with this. After months of frustrating conversations, one night, my roommate and I were leaving another one of those frustrating conversations. And we were beginning a long drive from Gainesville back home to Orlando. And in this hour and a half ride, we probably spent the first 45 minutes complaining about how awful that conversation was. But then it seems as though the Spirit of God did something. Our eyes were opened, our hearts were opened, and we finally perceived their condition. All along, these Mormon missionaries had been paving their way to hell with passion for good works. And in that moment, we were no longer so concerned with trying to prove them wrong and trying to indicate every single scriptural point that they misinterpreted or show how their reasoning was circular. But rather, we are confronted with their need for the gospel and their need for God to do something in their lives. And so we began to pray. After months of conversation, we finally began to pray. So how do you respond when you interact with people like this? You respond like I did, attempting to prove them wrong, trying to point out every reason they've misunderstood? Do you get angry, frustrated, bitter? Do you avoid them? Or, with a tender heart, do you have a conversation with them and long for them to know Jesus? Do you see them drowning in their attempts to earn righteousness and beg God to grant them salvation. But aside from Paul's example, why should we pray for people like this? It could be very tempting to see how frustrated we are and just say, oh, that was for Paul, not for me. Well, I think Paul actually gives us a couple reasons that are very important for this. One is based on the context of Romans 9. The second is found in 10 verse 2. In the context of Romans 9, we just learned that God shows mercy on whomever he will, and God will harden whomever he wills. So if God in his mercy can grant salvation to some, or God in his justice hardens some, of course we should pray to God, because he can actually do something about it. He can change people's hearts, even the people who are passionate about everything but Jesus. And in 10.2, we see another reason. And do you remember those key words I told you at the beginning, then or therefore? If you see those, you know that what you've just read is about, or what you're about to read is, just, is based on what you just read. Well, in 10.2, we see a word for. It's another one of those words. It indicates that a reason is about to be provided for what we've just read. So let's look at what leads Paul to pray for Israel. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Paul prays for Israel's salvation because they have a passion for God. The very passion that's not enough to save them leads Paul to pray for them. Israel was totally committed and passionate about what they believed, so they ran after it. And Paul's a prime example of that. As 
an Israelite, when Christ first came and Christians first started emerging, he got passionate. And he began to persecute Christians, even to death. But then God got a hold of his desires, his passions, and realigned them. When his passions were realigned, he joined the ranks of the apostles, he wrote half the New Testament, and he planted so many of the churches we read about in the New Testament. See, Paul realizes that if Israel came to know Christ, the gospel could be advanced so much. He knows that based on their passion, and if they had genuine salvation, it would do much for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. As much as I'm frustrated by Mormon missionaries, they would be great Christians. Did you know that every Mormon is supposed to go on a two-year mission? And during that time, as they go to country and state and city, they're supposed to share their faith with anyone who will listen. Can you imagine what it would be like if every person in this church took a pause from their studies, from their work, and went on a two-year mission? How many more places would the gospel go? How many more people would be reached with the gospel? It's this passion that Paul sees, admires, and leads him to pray for Israel. But it's also this passion. It's not enough to save Israel. All of you need to know that passion is not enough to save you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus is enough Our passion cannot be a passion for the general causes of today or a general passion for God or even a passion for obedience to his word. Our passion must be directed towards Christ, dependent on Christ, and driven by Christ. Passion's not enough to save you. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus is enough. You need to know that. You need to believe it. And the people outside of these doors, your friends, your family, they need to know it and believe it too. And so we're going to continue our worship this morning by doing something a little different. We're going to respond to God's word and prayer as a church. So right now, if you are someone who's full of passion, but you've not yet directed your passion towards Christ, And I want you to take this time in prayer to consider whether or not you would direct your passion towards him. If you would like to, and I would love to talk with you after, either during our time of singing or after the service, please come find me and I would love to talk with you. You could talk with one of our pastors, anyone on stage, or the person who even brought you. But if you have already directed your passion towards Christ, then what I would ask you to do is to use this time to pray for the people you know who are passionate about everything but Jesus. And if you don't know someone like that, then ask God to introduce you to someone. So we're going to spend our time in prayer. After a few minutes, I'll close us. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you that you save us. We thank you that you are worthy of our passion and our lives. We ask that you would direct our passions towards you. We ask that you would humble our hearts, give us tender hearts for the people who frustrate us, that we may show them you. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. We ask that you would be present with us as we respond. It's because of your precious name, Jesus, we can even pray. Amen.